Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, hope you're well. Our guest this week is Vitaly Katznelson. Vitaly is an author and a value investor who has taught at the University of Colorado and has written articles for such publications like Barron's, the FT, Forbes, and Business Insider, alongside his own blog, Contrarian Edge. He's also the CEO and CIO of Investment Management Associates in Colorado. Juan and Vitaly discuss the mental models that Vitaly uses in his everyday practices, including meiotic circles and the David and Goliath premise, which fans of Malcolm Gladwell may be familiar with. They also discuss how to integrate and communicate your decision-making processes, including how to make the processes not feel like a chore when used every day, and the importance of engaging with others so that they're involved in your decision-making processes and can help you to expose yourself to randomness. By the way, of housekeeping, it is worth noting that we did record this episode in January of 2022. Juan and Vitaly also discussed P.E. ratios in this episode. P.E. ratios, or price-to-earning ratios, is the ratio for valuing a company that measures its current share price relative to its earnings per share. P.E. ratios are essentially used by investors to determine the relative value of a company's shares in an apples-to-apples comparison. Enjoy. Vitaly Kadelson, welcome to the Value Perspective. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, guys. So I have to say um, a little bit of background for our audience. We were introduced by email by our friend Ben Banesh, um, great investor, Ben. And we were supposed to meet in Colorado just in the kind of uh, Christmas end of year season. And I never made it to Colorado. Uh, unfortunately, so I'm going to apologize in public to you for uh, for missing our live coffee. I accept your apology, and I think Ben is a, he- a phenomenal human being. And uh, yeah, I think COVID interrupted a lot of plans you know for the last two years. So yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. expected. Um, maybe for our audience and and those that don't know you. Can you please provide us with a little bit of background? Where did you grow up? Um, how did you end up being a value investor? So, as you can tell by my accent, I was born in Mississippi. No. Okay. <laughs> I was born in Russia. Uh, I was born in Russia. I moved to the United States in 1991. Um, so, I lived here in, I live in Denver, Colorado. I lived here for 30 years. Um, I have an undergraduate and graduate degrees in finance. I'm a CFA. Which means I'm a geek, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, to make things even worse, I'm a value investing geek. Um, I wrote a few investment books. Uh, the first one was called Active Value Investing. The second one was my first book, kind of simplified, called The Little Book of Sideways Markets. And those books are, like, especially the second one, a good summation of value investing should be. Um, 
that's kind of my version of value investing. Um, I run um, IMA, which is a value investment firm in Denver. And our clients are basically high net worth individuals. Uh, and most importantly, for your listeners, I run the, I have a, I write articles and I write every single day. Well, with very few exceptions, but I, like people work out every morning. I work out my brain every morning, I get up every morning and I write for about an hour to two hours, usually two hours every, every single day. And therefore I, you know, I've maybe published 30, 40 articles a year. It's kind of, well, you know, once every two weeks or so, maybe, you know, once a week sometimes. Um, and uh, I write about investing in classical music and life. And so if you're a reader, your listeners can listen to the, those articles actually as a podcast on investor.fm or they can go and read them on contrarianedgeedg.com. You know, so that's that kind of summation of me. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, you also have a podcast uh, that goes along with, uh, with the blog. Yes, and the podcast is a, like, unlike your podcast, which is a kind of a, a sophisticated uh, machine. My podcast is a, is a kind of, a, I call it lazy man's podcast. I have a basic, I basically, uh, there's a, another fellow who reads my articles to you. So it's almost like a, my articles on tape. So it's a, so if you don't like reading my articles, you know, or if you just want to listen to my articles while you're exercising, that's it. You just subscribe. You know, that's you know, and it's on investor.fm. It's called Intellectual Investor Podcast. I was um, I've never been to Colorado, and it was going to be my first time there. Um, what is like the investment community in Colorado, and and the value investor community in Colorado? So the Colorado is home for Janus Mutual Funds, which is probably one of the largest investment employers here. And therefore, it's a lot more kind of growth. Like a lot, there's a lot of uh, people who left Genesis and started their own firms. So they're a little bit more growth oriented, but there's still some value investors, but there's probably uh, because of Genesis, a larger predominance of growth investors here. Do you feel that being far away from some of the main financial centers helps you in your, as an investor, um, in in the way that you approach and think about any specific investment situation? Oh, yes. I think like if you live in New York, especially in New York, the atmosphere becomes very acidic because it becomes this micro-competition uh, has a bigger wallet kind of thing. And I like, it's like, I don't want to compare myself to Buffett, but the but one thing we have in common, and that's where it ends, is that we're both very far away from Wall Street. And I think that's actually, that's a big advantage because I can, when you are constantly compare, comparing your wallets to other people, then your focus shifts from investing to other, your KPIs, you know, switch. And, you know, I've been in Denver, I just keep thinking about, you know, investing as a long-term investor. That's, that's really interesting. Um, this is a podcast that aims to understand what tools, mental models, frameworks are used by elite practitioners in different fields to help them improve their decision-making and deal with uncertainty. And that's pretty much the core of what we aim to understand. We are very interested in understanding from your side if there are any particular tools from base rates to adopting probabilistic thinking or any other framework or models that you have incorporated as part of your process, not only as an investor, but to deal with day-to-day -day life. That's a, that is a, Juan, this is such a great question. Thank you for that. 
I find that I need to simplify complex things. So my brain has a kind of very low powered CPU. So I need to kind of simplify things to my level, to kind of to dumbify things. And a lot of times mental models help me to take something that's complex and dumb it down. And, um, and so I constantly looking for mental models. Uh, like, and I, I really enjoy you know, investing in life and in anything. So uh, let me tell you about two mental models. We just, uh, I just wrote about this recently. Uh, we haven't published it. Uh, we haven't published about it. One, I call myopic circles. Okay, so let me tell you about this one. We all live in our bubbles. If you think about, like, you know, so if I think about my friends, I don't have a single friend who smokes. Okay. And it's not because I don't want to be, you know, friends with people who smoke. It just happens to be that my uh, social demographic circles are people who are somewhat, probably higher income, some more health, you know, higher health conscious. And therefore, those people usually rarely smoke, right? So therefore, it's very easy for me to assume that nobody smokes, right? Because, well, everywhere, everywhere I look, I don't see a single smoker, right? But then I, like, I have this relative who smokes. And if he looks at the people around him, he finds that most people around him smoke, smoke, right? So therefore, the interesting part, the overlap of my circle and his circle is probably going to be, the, the, is very little overlap. And the reason it's important to understand is that as investors, a lot of times our view is skewed by our surroundings. Okay, so as an investor, I own tobacco stocks, for instance, right? So it's easy to assume that nobody, you know, because I don't see anybody who smokes, that people don't smoke, except I forget the number now, 14% of Americans smoke, and I probably in Europe that number is even higher. So, and so when you look at the world, you constantly have to mentally adjust. Is my view skewed by my surroundings? By the way, the same applies like by vaccinations. Like I don't like, for instance, I'm vaccinated. Again, this is no judgment. By the way, there is zero judgment on smokers vaccinated, but people who are vaccinated who don't vaccinate. But if I look around me, every, everybody, all my friends are vaccinated. The only ones who are not vaccinated, they have a very kind of very specific reasons, okay? And so therefore, it's easy for me to assume that everybody's vaccinated. We know that's obviously not the case. And then people I know, like, and then if I look kind of outside of my circle, that if I find a person who is not vaccinated because of their beliefs, then most likely those people are going to have, a, you know, will be surrounded by people who are not vaccinated. Again, I'm not, there is zero judgment here, but it's just, we need to mentally understand that we need to have make this mental adjustment that just because we do things in a certain way doesn't mean everybody does this. And then one way, um, I'm not going to mention the company name just because it's a very small company, but we were looking at a, a company that does money transfers between U.S. and Mexico. And if you think about, like when you and I think about money transfers, you think about PayPal or, or, or Zoom or whatever. The, um, but because you, you and I have checking accounts, um, you and I are mostly going to transfer money from within our country, you know, within our country, and to another person who has a the Venmo, whatever, you know. Well, but there's a huge amount of uh, money transfers happening between 
U.S. and Mexico, U.S. and Guatemala. And suddenly you discover that only 35% of Mexicans have checking accounts. And people, and you have another, you have two or three million Mexicans who are in the United States illegally. That number may be, may be even higher. And therefore, and they, these people, it's like when we were doing our research and we would go to, you know, to those kiosks where the, you know, people do money transfers, it's a world that I've never been exposed to. Like, I don't carry cash. Uh, these people, you know, this demographic operates on cash. They get paid usually in cash. And so, like, exposing myself to that, you know, you know to that uh, world that's, that I'm not familiar with was actually incredibly important for me. So because I, I understood actually, well, there was a huge, I forget the hundred billion, uh, there was, I think, hundred billion, I forget the number, I think hundred billion dollars transferred in the U.S. and Mexico every year, mostly going from U.S. to Mexico. Um, so that's the market I did not know exist. Anyway, that's one of the kind of mental models. Uh, we can talk about other ones too, but yeah. Yeah, please, by all means, you mentioned that there were two mental models. That, yeah, uh, so another one, and um, another one is a David versus Goliath, which is the oldest mental model. It's as old as the Bible, right? Because I think it's in the Bible. But so, and I am still in this mental model completely from uh, Malcolm Gladwell, because I think he wrote a book called David, David versus Goliath. And Gladwell's story, like when we know, when we think about the story, David versus Goliath, it's basically, it's a triumph of the underdog, right? It's the celebration of underdog versus the you know, giant. Well, Gladwell tells a very different story. Um, the Goliath was, I forget, six foot eight or seven foot three. This incredibly huge giant, a mutant almost. He had armor around him. Um, and if you were to fight him one-on-one, -on -one, there is no way you would win, okay? In fact, like you had these two armies stuck in, you know, like, you know the way the story goes, and I'm, you know, I'm gonna, not going to do a great job describing it, but you had these two the Israelis and the Philistines kind of stuck, and the Philistine basically, and, and uh, Philistines said, basically, come and fight us, and whoever wins this, you know, this fight, this is going to decide you know, the, the battle. And so the, the Philistines said, uh, send the uh, Goliath and is, uh, Israelites, or Israelis, I'm not sure, uh, Israelites or Israelis, they, you know, like nobody wants to go fight Goliath. And this shepherd, David, he's like, okay, I'll go fight him. And uh, a king gives him a sword and, and, and David says, I don't need your sword. And David was a shepherd and he was very good at throwing rocks, like as a, as a rock slinger. So, you have this situation where you have this huge giant in armor, and then you have this little, I don't know, 5'10 or 5'8, you know, kind of shepherds, you know, skinny, skinny shepherd going to fight him. But what, what, what Goliath did not know that, uh, you know, David was incredibly good at throwing rocks, you know, as a, sling, you know, as a slingshots. And uh, Gladwell, you know, did, you know, consulted some physicists and figured out that the, when when David was basically throwing the rock, like you know, you know, using a slingshot, it basically was going with the speed of a bullet. So you had one guy came to the fight with a sword, another one came with a gun. <laughs> Here is the key. Here is the key. If David chose to fight Goliath on Goliath's terms, he would lose. Yeah. But he chose to fight him on David's terms. So a lot of times, somebody's advantage could be turned into a disadvantage. Goliath's advantage of his armor made him 
a lot less mobile. Okay, and therefore that you know that became his disadvantage. You know, that turned into disadvantage because at a distance David was so much more powerful because he had a gun, right? And so like you know how the story ends. You know basically uh, David's you know. You know, throws the rock. You know, hit uh, Goliath in the temple. The uh, Goliath, you know, falls down. David comes to him and you know, cuts off his head. But that is so. Every time I look at a company or I look at my company, I'm trying to see, like, uh, like when I run my company, we are a tiny little firm that are competing against the company. Like there's a there is a genus mutual funds that manages I don't know a few hundred billion dollars, and we are we manage hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so how can I operate as David, as a company? Um, well, uh, I don't have the bureaucracy of David. Uh, I mean, I've served Goliath, you know, so, so how, you know, how I don't have the bureaucracy of Goliath. Therefore, I can, like, if, when, when you have a, when, they have a like, when you have a large company, you have a lot of politics, we don't have that. And we can keep going. I don't want to talk about my company, but let me apply this framework to the company I just discussed, the, the does money transfers. That company focuses just on Mexico and uh, Guatemala for, uh, net, uh, corridor for money transfers, okay? And because that's all they focus on, they can compete with giants, with, you know, they're one-tenth the size of Western Union or some other giants, but because of their laser focus, because that, you know, they can provide much better service because they have a, uh, they have agents who speak, you know, who speak Spanish, who they, they're in Mexico. They, you know, when, when you call them, they pick up the phone in four seconds. And there's a lot of other things they do just because they're so focused. So for the, them being, they realized that they've been, them being David, if they're focused, then, then, then actually they can fight Goliath. And Goliath might actually could work against, uh, against, uh, against the Goliath. So that, those are just... You know, kind of, I, in the client letter I just wrote, I combined these two frameworks, the myopic circles and David versus Goliath to describe how we were analyzing this company. I really like that concept of myopic circle. I remember once uh, the co-head of my team, Nick Kirech, saying that one should never extrapolate one's um, um, the things that one likes or the, 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 the way that one behaves into the investment process. And I think that this discussion took place many years ago, discussing Bed Bath and Beyond. And someone said like, no one, and I think, I think that someone uh, have said this or frame it in absolute terms. No one goes today to a place to buy towels. And, and he would say, well, may, maybe you don't, but that doesn't mean that a segment of the population uh, won't, um, which I think that it's pretty much a little bit of what you're, you're saying. That's a bias. So they, I think we have this bias, right? And I think we need to be, be aware of that. Um, one thing that we have touched upon on this podcast, um, and more specifically with Jake Taylor, he was making the point that we have all of these different tools that have been designed to help us become better decision makers, which should allow us to uh, become better investors. And so the incorporation of base rates or the myopic circle or many of these different frameworks, but then they are very different to put together in a coherent way. And sometimes it's just hard from a behavioral point of view, from a personal point of view, to just do the homework. So he made this analogy that it's a little bit like going to the gym. 
It's we know that it's good for us to go to the gym and exercise ourselves on a daily basis, but somehow behaviorally we fail to do that. So I, the, the follow-up question I would have for you is, how do you incorporate all of these different mental models or frameworks or, or tools to make better decisions or, or remove the biases in a way that um, is efficient and, and just eliminates a little bit the complexity of having so many tools at hand? Good question. Uh, by the way, Jake is phenomenal. Uh, you know, it's a, he's a good friend. He's a phenomenal human being too. Uh, and he's very thoughtful about this stuff. I think just like you, I, I, excuse my pun, but I mentally keep those mental models in the back of my mind. <laughs> um, like, I'm not sure I have a good system that's, you know, where I like, uh, I have a checklist, you know, but you, if you've been doing investing for a long time, you you see something and you're like, oh, this looks like that. But I'm not sure I'm very systematic about kind of a checklist of mental models. But one thing I am, like I do all the time, and I think I am writing is incredibly beneficial for me. Like this is how benefit, you know, I'm going to benefit from writing. Is that when you write, it's for, um, you tell stories, and a lot of times you're looking for analogies. And if you want me to look at it, in mental models, a lot of times there are analogies, right? So when I write, I constantly, it forces me to constantly look for mental models. And remember, I write every single day. And that's like, that's kind of my superpower in the sense that, like, you know, when I was born, I was given a very low IQ. And whatever boost I get from writing, that's kind of, you know, brings my IQ to kind of to average now. So that's like, that's my superpower. And that's how I see mental, like I see, I discover mental models probably more often than others just because I, you know, just because, just because I write. When, when you're writing on a daily basis, are you keeping a diary of, of what's happening or decisions that you've made in the past? and how they evolve, or you're just putting thoughts into paper and things that you will kind of review over, over time. But it's just like yeah. uh, a collage of ideas. Yeah, that's good. So I tried very hard to write a journal. And I think an average person should do a daily journal. But the problem is, it's very difficult for me to do this because I write about so many different things all the time. Then I'm constantly like daily journal requires this discipline and I have this excitement to write about other things that always conflict with daily journal writing. Um, so um, I write about things I'm kind of thinking you want to think through. Like um, if somebody asks me a question and I really want to find an answer for this question, the way I find that answer is by writing. Because if you think about writing, is basically what it is. It's a forced connection between your conscious and subconscious mind. And everybody's subconscious mind is so much more powerful than conscious mind. And therefore, writing kind of, instead of using iPhone to compute, you know, to come up with ideas, I'm using AWS or kind of, you know, my subconscious mind um, to kind of to analyze ideas. So that's what writing does for me. Uh, and so I do it daily and just I write about things I'm interested in. And a lot of times I write things and they never make it into articles. And then I might come back to them six months later and then they turn it into an article or something. 
I heard you recently make the point that when screening for ideas, it's important to expose yourself to randomness. And I found that line very thought-provoking, among ourselves, because on this podcast, we had Maria Konikova, and she talked a lot about the, the dark side of variance and how you, you needed to expose yourself to, to the dark side of variance as well. And so um, why is this so powerful and what needs to be incorporated within your emotional, psychological and mental process to successfully take advantage of this? Because randomness tends to scare people. They don't, you don't feel comfortable being exposed to random events. It's a good, very good question. Um... I approach investing as a very creative process. Like I know, like you, you don't look at value investing and think of him as being an artist, but there is a two parts to investing. There is a kind of analytical part and creative part, and they kind of meet somewhere in the middle. Because if you were just doing analysis, then you are just you kind of turn into software, like in a very. And if you you know if you think only in numbers and don't look at the soft side, then you might as well be because you'll be competing with computers, and computers will outsmart you any day. You know, uh, they'll be, you know they'll they'll do computation better. So there's a lot of creativity in investing, uh, as well as uh, just be able to analyze stuff. Um, and I would argue mental models are probably belong to cre- you know the creativity side of you know, creative side of investing. Um, what you think about just for a second, uh, like when I talked to David versus Goliath. I was reading Gladwell's book not because I was looking for a mental model. I was reading because it was interesting. So by doing it, I exposed myself to something that lies outside of investing, completely outside of investing. And then I was able to turn this idea that lies completely outside of investing into in a, in a kind of, uh, it's a life, and, but it's also invested mental model, right? So exposing yourself to randomness helps you to, uh, Kind of build this mental, you know, you know, I can, I can approach it from a mental model perspective. Helps you to build this mental mental models because a lot of times you you bring this mental models from the world that are completely outside of investing. Um, like the myopic circles. I mean, I, you know, I thought of this when I was thinking about you know the vaccinations. How, how come I don't know anybody who's not vaccinated? Uh, like you know, that's how I came to that. Um, so. That's partial answer to your question. Another thing is that you just never know where ideas come from. Like you were, uh, uh, you know, uh, I I remember talking. I I remember talking to a friend, and we ended up talking about, you know, shopping malls. And I'm like, well, actually, and I was thinking, well, actually, maybe the factory outlet may be a good investment. And that was it. This a short conversation, and that was a throw, you know, throwaway idea like throwaway thought. And then I ended up going into rabbit hole of shopping malls and ended up spending, up, uh, spending a lot of time on, on our outlets and we bought a stock. That was completely random. But um, be able to see that you, like investing is not working in the factory at Ford or Fiat. It's not an idea per hour. It's not the more you work, like the harder you work, the better your results are going to be. I, it's a... It's see, it's you live in this. It's constantly in this world, you know, so where you you're stuck between analytics and creativity, and you know, and a lot of times I find that, like I like what, let me let me give you another thing I, I do every day. 
uh, I go for walk in the park for about an hour, an hour and a half. So if you look at my uh, iPhone, you will see that every day I do at least 10,000 steps, which is good for my health. But also I do this because this is where my subconscious does the best thinking. Um, I, you know, I, I, I walk, I listen to music. Sometimes I listen to podcasts. A lot of times I just walk and sit on the bench and think on the bench and think. So that is myself exposing myself to randomness, to randomness. So, um, I've been following you for many years and I don't know when, when I made a note of this, I think that you were, did at, at, at any point were you a columnist for uh, institutional investor? Oh yeah, no, I, I I wrote a column for institutional investor for seven years. I was the only outside columnist who wrote like a uh, monthly column for them. Okay, so I think I got this from there. Oh. Um, and so um, I'm going to actually read what my the, the, the note that I took many years ago. This was like at least at least more than five years ago. Wow. And you, you said back then, just as it is easier to draw lines than to think in non-linear terms, it is simpler to buy stocks that have gone up a lot over the previous decade than to remain committed to the ones that have done nothing. However, linearity is for suckers. Success in investing comes from being able to see not what is in front of you, but what is lurking just around the corner. I thought it was a very powerful line. And of course, I made a note out of it. And, and what's interesting is, is this concept of linear thinking, because that's another bias. That's, that's a tendency that we have to protect ourselves, to sometimes make shortcuts and make certain decisions and extrapolate into the future, things that maybe should not be extrapolated into the future. Um, and so um, I was wondering, do you think that you were born to avoid linear thinking or you have trained yourself in time to avoid it? That's a great question. Well, so I, like I'm always questioning myself how much I've been born in Russia had impact on me as a human being. And um, I have this, you know, like if you, when you, when you read my writing and you sense the sarcasm, I think that's my Russian sarcasm that comes out. You know. But the funny part is I'm 48 years old and I lived in the United States for two thirds of my life. And if you actually just for the fact that probably the first eight of your life, eight, first eight years of your life, you probably don't remember anything then you, arguably I lived here for 80% of my life. So, uh, um, but there was still like, so when I, like, when I, like, let me give you the, probably one of the best examples of, of linear thinking where it kind of, where it was very dangerous. Um, in 2008, financial crisis or housing bubble. At the time, if you look at the housing data going back as far as it went, maybe 40, 50 years before, housing prices never declined nationwide. And that's the key word, nationwide. So if you were in the rating agency or bank or any financial player, player, you would have looked at this data and said, if I take a house from Wisconsin and a house from uh, Alabama in, a, in an apartment in uh, New York, and I put them together in one portfolio, this portfolio, they, because of diversification, I'm very unlikely to lose money. If, if you know, prices decline in Alabama, most likely they won't decline in New York or vice versa. So, and 
here's the interesting part. If everybody acts as if what happened in the past is kind of uh, is a, almost like a law, if it takes, you know, kind of, if you, because that was not a law, that it's not a, it's not a law of physics that housing prices never decline nationwide. It's, it's something we just have observed over the last 40, 50 years, right? Um, if everybody acts, confuses a kind of, um, 40, 50 years of data with a law, then that's more, you know, because of reflexivity, we're most likely going to violate that even more because you're going to have a, you know, you're going to build more houses, you know, you're going to build more houses, people are going to use more leverage, and then you have financial crisis happen. So, and the same thing, like when it comes to stocks, um, also, a lot of times people confuse price turnings, like price, if you think about price turnings, by definition, it's a mean revert. It's it's a mean reverting uh, metric. So the and I brought a book and the, my 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 books were actually about the topic, right? Because whenever the stock price is going up because of price turning expansion, just solely because of that, or that's a big driver. When the price turnings go to above average and starts going into stratosphere, at some point price turnings stop going up, and they decline. If you look at every market cycle, that's what happened. So this is why when you look at, uh, and we kind of experienced this over the last eight months. If you look at the you know kind of uh, arc technology stocks, you know the all those companies traded at sixty times revenues, and actually it's kind of funny they're down 80 percent, and I looked at them, and now they traded you know only thirty times revenues, only in the air quotes, um, and that's still not cheap. Um, so. It's very important to understand which metrics are mean revert, which ones don't. And I think that's, you know, so the so when I look at the metrics, I always kind of mentally ask myself, is that a mean reverting metric or not? I guess that connects with your uh, myopic circle framework as well. The fact that if you are, if you don't look outside of what you are uh, exposed to, then you might default more to think in linear terms rather than understand that maybe things are not linear. Yeah, it's, you know, so remember, and I, I'm going to butcher it, but there were two money managers. Oh, yeah, I know who they are. So I, I don't want to, I'm not going to mention names because they're good good people and I don't want to. So there were two money managers. One is was kind of the king of the stock market, another one the king of a bond market. I'm not going to mention names. One had a great 2008 and one had a horrible 2008. And I think in part because one lived in California, another one lived in uh, on the East Coast. The one who lived in California saw the housing bubble that was much greater than the one on the East Coast. And they just, they were kind of, so the one who blew up did not see it as much because, you know, he looked around him and that probably did not see the housing prices going being as crazy as the one who lived in, you know, on the West Coast. It's kind of, you know, and was exposed to the insanity of the housing bubble. So just that that's it would be, see what you and I just did, we married two different mental models together. Yeah. And, and, that's, and, that's, and that's how they become more powerful. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how you started your, uh, the answer to your, to the, to the last question, we made a reference to your uh, roots in Russia because, well, I'm Colombian. And so that, that leads me to my next question, which is, I believe that we're shaped by the context and environment in which we grow up. Mm -hmm. uh, and our understanding of risk and the perception about it is shaped by experiences very early in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so you 
Russia, as you have explained before, and then migrated to the U.S. Do you believe that your understanding of risk is different because of your background and those very early experiences? Or uh, is this way of thinking about risk or the, or the different perception, would you consider that a weakness or a strength? So it's kind of interesting. If you, know, like, uh, if you grew up in the United States, mostly only good things happen to the United States, right? I mean, you, you have this country that's the largest economy in the world. You have this abundance of natural resources. You're surrounded by two oceans. You have two friendly neighbors, you know, the polite one in the north and the, and the, and the happy one in the, you know, in, the, in the south. You know, so, it's a, um, so you have this kind of, it's a, almost like a micro bubble. I mean, it's a huge bubble, but it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's an environment where since World War II, United States only saw mostly good things happen to it. If you grew up in the uh, Latin America, that you had a very different experience, right? So it's a lot more different. It's like let me give you an example where I actually, where I fell into kind of uh, non-Russian thinking or not like less skeptical thinking than I should have had. I, this is I'm embarrassed what I'm about to say. Like it's a, but it's a, but that tells you about my, like. Like, this is so embarrassing. Go for it, go for it. Okay, so January, February 2020. This virus is blowing up in China. I am literally, early February, I'm in Venice. And there's a lot of Chinese tourists in Venice. And I'm, this is like an mental, I'm thinking, well, they might be infected, but like this is again, I'm so embarrassed for this because this is just unfiltered thought. Now that I look at this thought, I'm like, my God, this is just such an idiotic thought. I'm like, well, if they're infected, I won't get infected because it's a Chinese problem. Again, just think about how idiotic that thought is. But my point is like, if you look, but if you kind of take it on a more thoughtful level, we looked like, I remember a week later after I came to Denver from my trip to Europe. And a week before that, maybe two weeks before this, I was in Milan. And suddenly, I'm looking, watching, watching, looking at TV, and suddenly Milan has been, the stores are empty. There was a wave of COVID going through Milan. And I realized I was just there two weeks ago. And at the time, I could not imagine that something like this could happen in Milan. Uh, and, and I also realized that most of us look at the coronavirus and we thought, you know, the not smart ones like me, thought that this was a Chinese phenomenon only. And, and then, and the, because in the, every time it happened in the past, it never really came to the United States. Like, you know, even the you know, um, SARS, et cetera, this was mostly kind of, you know, Asian phenomena. And so I'm, I bet if you lived in Asia and, and you read the news about, you know, you know the COVID you know, in China, your reaction would have been, you know, very different than kind of, you know, dumb American, I guess. Um, me, I'm talking about myself here. Um, um, but uh, anyway, so, so that is like, you know, that is where I, you know, like, uh, I guess I, so now I'm very aware of this flaw. Like, you know, so now I'm very aware that we only think that bad things could happen somewhere else. And, you know, and also, you know, by the way, growing up in Russia, like, you know, the, you become skeptical, you know, in Soviet Russia, you know, it was easy to become skeptical of the government or of the future uh, because it, you know, they give you promises that it's a bright future and it was never bright. 
Um, it actually always gets worse. Um, so now when I look, um, and I wrote a huge article about this because now when we look, when you think about US dollar, for instance, if you lived in the United States for last, you know, since 1940, if you was born time after World War II, you basically saw the kind of rise in dominance of US dollar, where it became global global reserve currency. But again, so what we're gonna do, we're just gonna put a few mental models together. But the linear thinking that US dollar can only, you know, will always get, always gonna be a reserve currency mm-hmm. is dangerous because as a country, we behave that it's a God-given right for us to mm-hmm. have reserve currency. It's not, it's something you earn. And we earned it for good reasons, right? Because we were the strongest economy after World War II and all the aforementioned, you know, all the things I said before. However, what happens, like as we behave as if it's, you know, as a, it's kind of, it's a you know, God-given right, we have, now we have $30 trillion of debt and we keep spending money, we keep spending money as if, you know, we can have $40 trillion, $50 trillion of debt. Uh, at some point, the world look at us and say, Okay, maybe U.S. is a strong economy than, you know, you pick, but it's not as strong as it used to be in the past, and they will start allocating money away from U.S. dollar. It doesn't mean that we're going to stop overnight being a reserve currency, but, you know, we're going to, you know, you're going to start seeing kind of a basket allocation or, you know, something like that. So it's not going to be binary, and I think that's another thing. Uh, you, you want another mental model? I always, you know, catch myself of thinking. Am I thinking in binary terms or nuanced terms? Okay, so when we talk about reserve currency, it's usually binary discussion, right? In other words, either we're reserve currency or not. But if you think about nuances, well, it doesn't, it doesn't have to work this way. Nuance, nuance thinking, it just will become less of reserve currency. So anyway, so that's... Yeah, I think that even Seth Klarman on his last letter, um, I haven't read it, but I, I've seen the commentary where he points to the risk that democracy is not a given and people are taking it for granted in the U.S. to a certain degree. I just wrote, I highly, like probably the best article I wrote last year. I wrote this article about, like on December 4th, it was last year, it was 30 years since, uh, December 5th or 4th, it was 30 years that we came to, to the United States. And I wrote basically this article about my thoughts about America over the last 30 years. And, you know, the, and the country has changed tremendously. Like, I think the country, ironically, the longer I live here, the less I understand the country because it has changed tremendously over the years. And we are taking democracy for, for granted now. We, you know, we are taking freedom of speech for granted. We are becoming more tribal. And uh, so, yes, I think it's democracy is, again, just like the... Uh, democracy, just like the um, reserve currency status, is not got given right. It's something you have to continue to. Uh, you you can't lose it. You know, you, if you behave in a certain way, you can lose it over time. Um, ch- changing gears a little bit, we something that we we explore a lot in my team is how do you communicate? How do you communicate with people? Many of these concepts, which are some of these concepts, some of these frameworks, some of these tools are, they, they seem easy to understand, but they are very difficult to put in practice. And some of them are not, not so easy to understand. Like, like the, the whole thinking in probabilities, that's not something that comes very naturally to many people. Um, and you have pointed out 
that you you, you you like this process of writing and you're very good at it, by the way. And so um, I think that many people say that they understand the importance of having, say, for instance, long-term thinking and a focus on process over outcome and avoiding and filtering noise. Yet when there are periods of underperformance or markets get choppy or just things get very volatile, even outside of markets, people tend to completely forget and ignore all of this. So how do you communicate to your current and future clients so that they understand and embrace many of these concepts? Um, so it's um, a good question. As you have mentioned, I write. And I, I am, the beauty actually, I just realized there's a bit of writer has a, such a great advantage. I'm a better writer than I'm a speaker. And uh, because when I write, I get to polish. I have, I, I have this flexibility to think about and weigh every single word, okay? When you speak, you think for the most part in real time, therefore you don't have this ability. You don't have this, um, like I don't have this luxury of carefully think about every single word that I'm gonna put together and I'm gonna you know, say to you. But also writing is a lot more scalable. Like it's a, I can write one letter send it to all my clients, or I can have 250 conversations, which would take hours and hours and hours with my clients every, every quarter. And, uh, and I would argue that uh, me, you know, so, the, so what I do four times, a, four times a year, I write a letter to clients. I call them seasonal letters, not quarter letters. So this is an important distinction. Quarters kind of happen like in our industry, quarters happen 15, you know, you expect to get a quarter letter somewhere between the first day and the two weeks later when the quarter ends. The irony of this is that when most companies start reporting numbers, maybe a week or two weeks after the quarter ends. So I'd like to write about what happened to our portfolio after all my companies report the numbers. So I write this 27 to 35 page loan letters. And and in this letter, I try to bring my client as close as possible to their portfolio. And let me give you this analogy. Um, I have this client. I, was, I had a meeting with one of my clients. And he was a retired pilot, uh, like an airline pilot. And I was talking to him that I, I'm afraid of flying in the sense that I fly all the time. But I have this fear like when you're on the plane and you're 7,000 feet or 15,000 feet in the air and you start shaking, I become a little bit more religious, you know, just, um, just because you're on this can that's so high up and this winds, it starts flapping. And he said, you know, it's kind of funny. When I was a pilot, I was not afraid of these things, but now I'm, I'm, I'm a passenger I'm an, you know, and I'm afraid of this too. And I realize this applies to investing as well, because when he, was in, when he was a pilot, he had all the information in front of him and he had control. Uh, now that he is a passenger on the plane, he doesn't have control, even though intellectually he understands what's happening because he doesn't have control, he's more nervous. Now, think about this. As an, inv like as an investor, when I buy a company, we spend tens, sometimes hundreds of hours doing research as a team on, the, on this company. So we understand the business very well. So when the stock price declines, we actually we kind of have a good idea what the risks are, what the company is worth. For our clients, if they know nothing about it, it's just a ticker that is now worth 50% less than it was you know, three months ago, right? 
so there would be just the passengers kind of sitting on the plane. When I tell them how we look at the business, how we value it, then I try to bring them as close as possible to the cockpit without them actually, you know, kind of uh, flying the plane. So this is why, like, I find that my communication to clients is incredibly important. Let me take it a step further. Um, Go to March and April 2020, when the market was, you know, going down 10% a day or something like this. I went from communicating to clients um, uh, once every three months to once a week. And we would just, you know, and there would not be 27 page letters, but we would just, we were learning, yeah, we would basically update our thinking every week because our our thinking was changing because we were learning new information. And I would argue that, you know, we reduced volatility of our clients' blood pressure tremendously just because of that. So the opposite, so in, so in other words, instead of hiding under my desk and just kind of going quiet, we did that, you know, we did the other way, we went the other way. We commun, you know, we, you could argue we over-communicated to clients because when things are going well, nobody cares. It's when things go badly, that's when you, when things go bad, that's when your communication becomes important. And so, but here's the thing, in the good times, I still want my clients to read my letters because over time, like when, if they read them in the good times, when the bad times come, they will already know what they own because they read my letters for a few years and then they will panic less. That, that's really interesting. Um, we've, you, you've talked in the past about the importance you subscribe today to management's quality. And I want to approach this question from a behavioral angle. So we know that many people, when they make it to the top, uh, in business or otherwise, they tend to be very good at sales and building a narrative. And so every time you meet with anyone, there is a risk that you will get biased by their narrative, their story, the, 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 how good they are to communicating their story. So how do you protect yourself from getting biased and allow, allowing their narrative, good or bad, from shaping and impacting your decision-making? That is a phenomenal question. Um, let, me do a, let me do a small plug. I just finished the book, new book. It's coming out in May, and it's called Soul in the Game. It's a, the art of a meaningful life. And this book has absolutely nothing to do with investing. Not a single chapter in that book is about investing. And about one-third of the book is about Stoic philosophy. And I just, so in the ancient Rome, there was this group of people, uh, there was this, uh, not a group of people, there was this school of sophists. Like, you know, the word sophisticated has the same root as sophist. And, um, and they, this, this was a school bears. It was, that was a school where they would teach kids or adults how to be in the very elegant speakers. But Stoics never liked them very much because those people, that school taught people how to speak, but they, they did not teach them the morals. You know, usually the morals, the, um, the Stoic philosophy did. In fact, Stoics, Stoics usually... In try, you know, they, they kind of took the opposite approach. They would want you, they want to speak very efficiently and not try to uh, amplify things because a lot of times when we describe things, we or uh, by we all amplify it. And by the way, I'm guilty of that because <laughs> because I'm a writer. You know, like I write a lot, um, but instead of you know instead of saying I'm having the worst day of my life, you can say, well, I'm you know my portfolio is down three percent. 
like I'm just, you know, like so Sophist would say, I'm you know, I'm having this incredibly horrible whatever day of my life. Sophist would say, uh, Stoics would say, Oh, I'm down three percent. Okay. Now, what's important about this is that as a, uh, I always learned after I learned about this, I always you're absolutely right to become a good to become a CEO. One of the prerequisites you have to be a good speaker. You have to be sophist to some degree. Like you can have sophist and stoic in the same body, or you can just be a sophist. So, therefore, whenever I encounter somebody who is an incredibly good speaker. I become a lot more alarmed. But by the way, it doesn't mean that person is a charlatan. That's that's not the point. I'm just, I try to distill it you know, to what the person say to facts a lot more than I usually would. So, um, like when somebody says they're having this phenomenal year, I would say, okay, so maybe like I'm like I'm like let's look at the numbers. He's up seven percent. Okay, but you see what I mean? Like. Um, uh, and I'm not going to get political problems, but if you think about it, President Trump was a sophist. Like he would use these big terms, you know, and so as a, like if you wanted to be analytical when you listen to him, you probably wanted to go to this, you know, kind of more stoic level and try to, you know, you know break it up to basics, you know. You know, so he says, okay, we have a great economy. Okay, well, GDP grew 3.2%. You know, th- that's what I mean. So anyway, so when we analyze companies and I encounter somebody and by the way, a lot of management learn how to cater to the like value investing community. I see a lot of management team do this, and they they use all the Buffett terms and they quote Buffett every you know every third sentence. And when I see this, I I be, you know kind of I become a lot more um, like first of all, it's a good thing that you know, if they if they truly believe this, that's one thing. If they just say if they just say this and don't believe this, that's something else. Um, so I become more alarmed. And uh, my, you know, and I, and I filtrate it more. I filtrate the speech more when you know when that happens. Vitaly, we are coming to an end of our session, and we always ask our guests two questions: uh, a book recommendation, it can be more than one, of course, and uh, a bad, an example of a bad decision where you can identify the poor outcome from bad process rather than bad luck, and it doesn't really need to be invest, invested related. The books are easy, actually. Um, I'll give you a couple of books. Uh, one is uh, Alchemy by um, Rory Sutherland, which is a phenomenal book. And it's a, and I, especially I would recommend his audio book because he reads it and he, and he is a very, like it's, a, it's written extremely well. Um, that's one book. The, um, another book, which is a stoic book, uh, the, Guide to the, Good, uh, the Guide to the Good Life by... William Irvin, uh, and it's a that is the book that turned turned me into stoic into stoic philosophy. But I gotta like make one caveat: when you start reading this book, skip the first three chapters because they kind of they are the very technical. Start with chapter four, and I think it's going to be much easier to read. Uh, um, well, I think I just gave you the kind of my like you know, I gave you the, my, my COVID story. Uh, like when I, when I looked to Chinese, Chinese tourists and thought I'm kind of, I, I cannot get COVID because I live in the United States. That's probably the dumbest decision mm-hmm. <laughs> I've made in 2020 because if I just, that's the most embarrassing one for sure. Um, 
let me stick to that one because I think I can just, I'm going to stick my embarrassment to just one <laughs> per podcast. That's, that's perfectly fine. Vitaly, thank you very much for your time. This was an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's, it was fun. Thank you so much. It was really good. Thank you. <laughs>